Welcome to Behind the Line, the podcast where you'll get untold stories from first responders and military veterans. I'm Tim Hegman. I'll be your host. My guest today served in the United States Marine Corps from 1987 to 1991. After being honorably discharged, he joined the Simi Valley Police Department in 1991. Just three years into his law enforcement career, he was involved in an officer-involved shooting. As a result of that incident, he was awarded the Medal of Valor. In 1997, he left the Simi Valley Police Department and, to work, and went to work for his hometown and became a police officer with the Oxnard Police Department. In 2020, after 29 years of service, he retired as a sergeant. During his career, he, like so many other police officers, were involved in a number of critical incidents. After his retirement, he found purpose in working with and serving as a public safety advocate. Please welcome my guest and friend, Jeff McGreevy. Jeff, welcome to the Behind the Line podcast. Thank you, man. It's good to be here. This is going to be fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. Um, I know you made that drive from uh, another county. Uh, how was the traffic? LA, how did LA traffic treat you? You know, my favorite was the 405-101 interchange, like going into the bowels of, of hell. But because I love you so much, I, <laughs> I didn't quit. No, I, well, I, number one, I appreciate that very much. And, I, you know, it's funny you said because I could be in the best mood and I've been driving to see some family member, but you get to the transition of the 405 and the 101. Yeah. And sometimes that mood changes quickly. Yeah. You're like, we're driving through Calabasas and it's beautiful and everything's wide open and nice. And then it just slowly. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was all good, man. Well, you made it here and I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. So obviously there's a number of things I want to talk about, you know, your career, uh, the incident you were involved with in um, your shooting, um, other incidents, incidents you were exposed to and part of. Um, and to learn what you're doing these days for officer wellness. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit about you, your background. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in, in Long Island, New York. Uh, you know, my family's East Coast and moved to California when I was nine years old and in fourth grade. Um, and we landed in, in Oxnard. So um, went to Oxnard High School. Uh, and when I was 17 in my, my senior year, I joined the Marine Corps. Wow, 17. So you were still in school. Mm-hmm and uh, made that decision uh, to serve your country and join the Marines. So good for you. Thanks, man. I tried when I, I sent them a letter when I was 14 and they, I, I still have the thing that says, thanks for your interest in the United States Marine Corps, but because you're only 14, you know. <laughs> Is that a true story? Here's a sticker. Yeah, it's a true story. Oh my gosh. They sent me a sticker. So I was, you know. Well, it reminds me of, uh, you know, uh, Colonel Hackworth uh-huh. uh, joined uh, early on. He tried to join. I yeah. think he actually pulled it off and got he, in there. He got in there quite early, young. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. During the, the Korean War, right? Yeah, you know, was, exactly right. Yeah. So funny how back then you could kind of Yeah, about face is, a, I mean, it's the size of an encyclopedia, um, but uh, it's an amazing leadership book. Very much so. Yeah. Highly recommend that mm-hmm. book. That's a great one. Uh, but it's just know you have to devote some time to it. Oh, yeah. And even on audio, it's like 17 hours long to yeah. try and listen to it on, on the Audible. Yeah. No, it's a great book. Um, what about family? Uh, here now. Yeah. So um, I'm married to my high school sweetheart. Uh, we met in 11th grade. And uh, a year out of high school, we got married. So we were super young when we got married. I wow. was 18. She was 19. Um, and, you know, we've been married for 34, going on 35 years, but we've been together for 36 or 37 years, wow. um, you know, and it's just one of those relationships that, um, 
it's kind of a unicorn because most people don't last that long. And it's, and there's only um, a small number of people that actually, you know, have a relationship for kind of really she's my high school sweetheart. So um, from 11th grade on, uh, we've been together. Uh, we got two kids um, and one grandson and another grandson on the way in about six weeks. But uh, yeah, my boy's 32, my daughter's 28, and they're they're both fantastic uh, young adults and they're thriving. They're doing really well. And uh, my my son is is married and and um, and getting ready to have his second child. And we couldn't be happier. That's good. Uh, proud husband, proud dad, and uh, gra- uh, proud grandpa. Yeah. Good for you. That's the best part. I think the grandpa stuff is like, you get a redo from you know all the stuff that little mistakes you made when you were a young <laughs> father. Uh, you're w- older and wiser, and and uh, and have more time too. You yeah, know, when I was young, sure. my wife and I talk about this all the time. About um, when they were kids, I was working the graveyard shift. I was working overtime, and you know, my wife. Um, fortunately, you know, we got into a position where she could uh, stay home. And take care of them and get them to school and take care of all the things in the house and then my job was to go and you know and earn a living and yep. and um you know sacrifice a lot but um you know really my, my i credit my wife for uh the way those kids came out because it was her dedication and love to them that uh you know that that made it happen you know, that's awesome and uh well said and congratulations thank you okay so you uh were in the marine corps uh, served your country. Thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. You too. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, police officer, something you always thought about or you thought that's that came on later on in life or why why did you become a police officer? I think I always wanted to serve. So I had this, I was a very patriotic person um, from a young age. And, you know, my grandfather was in the Marine Corps in World War II. And I, uh, my, my father uh, was out of my life from probably age seven on. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my parents divorced early, but my dad was in a car accident that, and he got partially paralyzed. Um, and it was, it was a drunk driving. He had too much to drink and, mm. um, you know, got in the car and drove when he shouldn't have. And the road bent to the left and his car kept going straight. And he, you know, he hit a, a tree or a telephone pole and, um, and he, and that changed his life forever. He spent the next 30 plus years of his life in a nursing home. Mm. You know, he, uh, so he was out of my life early and my grandfather uh i mentioned i was i was from the east coast originally i lived with my grandparents uh, from the time i was in kindergarten i was you know living with my grandparents and then when we moved to to california kind of got uprooted from my family but my grandfather was kind of my hero like you know mm-hmm. as far as like my mil- that person that uh he was very mysterious he didn't talk about he was one of those people from that era that he didn't talk a lot about his service and what he did. Even when I was in the Marine Corps, I asked him some questions and it was, there was stuff that he was exposed to and experienced that he just didn't want to talk about anymore. And he, and so he didn't, he didn't talk to me specifically about things that he did in the military, but it was like always from a little kid, it was like, you know, your grandpa, Charlie, Charlie was in the Marines, you know? Mm. And, uh, but my, my aunts, one of my aunts specifically, I always remember her, um, saying that, that Charlie had shell shock. Mm. And I think that's what they referred to as kind of put what we call post-traumatic stress now. Right. Um, but it's like, you know, when he came home from the war, he had shell shock. And my mom told me about um, some nightmares that he had and told me a little bit about some things that they experienced with him when, when they were young. And you fast forward 40 years and some of those things my children had to 
uh, my children experienced mm. some of those same things that, you know, a sliver of that my my grandfather experienced. But anyway, I, I was patriotic from a young age, and um, I knew I wanted to go into the military. And my grandfather was Marine, and I got brought up that the Marines were the best and the toughest. And and so it was kind of there was never a doubt on which service I was going to join. Yeah, and and that led me to you know. Um, when people ask me, you know, why I became a police officer, I, the best answer I have is that I had an opportunity to serve my country. And then I thought, well, maybe now I can go serve my community. Maybe mm-hmm. I can go home and use this experience that I had. Uh, the Marine Corps, you know, they grow you up real quick. You know, you, I joined when I was 17. Yeah. I got out when I was 21. And, and so my um, maturity got accelerated and it helped me. Uh, there's no, no way I would have been, um, probably made it through the hiring process had I not gone, gone in the Marine Corps. That gave me the, the competitive edge to compete with, uh, with all the college boys. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you had that, you had that sense of service yeah, to continue sure. on. Uh, uh, you served your nation time to go back and eventually serve your hometown. But before that you served another community with Simi Valley. So, yeah. um, okay. So as a police officer and up to you retired, even as a sergeant, what were some of the assignments that you that you worked? Yeah, I uh, did a lot of good stuff. I was most, mostly on the field services side or the operational side. So um, I served on two SWAT teams, very fortunate. So uh, in Simi Valley, I was a patrol officer and on the SWAT team for two years. And when I lateral to Oxnard PD, their SWAT team was um, in a transition where they were going to more of a full-time mm. team. So it was a quasi, they weren't truly full-time, but it was this quasi full-time where they were taking everybody that was on the SWAT team and they were gonna put them into a unit and um, they were gonna, all gonna work together and they were all on the SWAT team. And that was very exciting to me. So I was like, all right, I got some military experience. I've, I've been through uh, some critical incidents now, and there's this team that's a little bit bigger, and it's a busier city. And my goal is like, man, if I, I'd love to get on that SWAT team. And a couple of my friends were on that SWAT team. I'd gone to school, uh, SWAT school, with a couple of the guys that were on that team. So I was kind of building relationships, mm. and you know, really, um, they were busy, and I wanted to be busier. And so uh, when I went over to Oxnard, that was my goal: is I wanted to try and get on that SWAT team. So um, anyway. Wh- um, patrol, uh, uh, got on very quickly, got on to, within a year I got on to, once I finished my probation, basically in Oxnard, I got into the special enforcement unit, which was their mm. SWAT team. Uh, I did that for eight years. And for four of those years, I was a canine handler. So, uh, you know, I had SWAT canine and in the gang unit all at, uh, one time, tremendous amount of work, but it was, it was really a, uh, an awesome job, but it was, um, you know, looking back on it, you when you're a canine handler, you really got to be focused on the canine world. Yeah. The SWAT world, you really need to be focused yeah. on the, the tactical side. And I had a lot of experience, so that stuff was okay. But it's like, you know, it was always going back and forth and balancing. And then our day job was we were we were in the gang unit. So doing uniform gang enforcement, uh, surveillance. We were the, the team. Like if somebody needed to go get found, we were uh, the ones that were going to go try and find them, doing probation searches, working with other units and other departments and um, when something needed to get done, you know, that usually came to us. And then on the training side, too, because we were the SWAT team, we were doing a lot of the in-service training. So tactical training, tactical decision-making, scenario-based training. Um, it, that was really cool experience to be involved in that. Um, and back to patrol, and I became a field training officer. So it's like usually people start as an FTO, and they're like two, three years in patrol. Then they become an FTO. And like I became an FTO when I had like 11 
years on, or oh. 14 years. I think it was actually 14 years. But a lot of experience. I had a bunch of experience, um, but now I'm the, like the older guy, calmed down a bit, you yeah, know, oh, yeah, you're right. And I've, you know, been through some stuff. So it was good. I was kind of that, uh, the FTO that, um, what, you know, I, I had experience, which was good. And, um, you know, I think I contributed to that program in a good way. There was ways where I was like, Hey, I think we can do a little better over here with some of our training that we're doing. And the, um, the, the, we had a pre-field training academy that we did, like they come out of the academy, but then we had a, um, six or eight week program where we'd put them through like, okay, here's how you learn how to be an Oxnard police officer oh, right, yeah. and what we do. Um, from there went to, um, detectives. Um, I, I was a, a, gang investigator and then a robbery, violent assault investigator. So about a year and a half as a gang investigator. So all that experience I had working um, in the gang unit and, and my field experience finally got to where I could be a detective. Uh, and that's where I was really looking for like, hey, you got, it's time to try and advance. So, you know, you mm. want to start getting into uh, opportunities to try and get promoted because your body's starting to get old, yep. back's getting sore and yep. you can't work uh, patrol for the rest of your life. You're not going to make it, dude. Like, you know, you're, long I don't career. know if your back is going to, you know, push this uh, black and white around forever. Yeah. Uh, so I was really happy for the opportunity to get into detectives, worked in a, a phenomenal unit. And then uh, for a short period of time, I got moved from gangs to um, uh, robbery and violent assault. And then from there, I promoted. Um, went to a, that's where I went to community policing. And that's where I went, like I had this Everything else I just talked to you about was pretty much operational, except for the detective piece, like, you know, field services and patrol and gang unit, and then going into um, an invest the investigation unit, but it was that, that background in gangs that got me there. And now I'm in community policing, where you have to go out and build relationships with the mm -hmm. community and, uh, and liaison with the community. And that's where my career really shifted, where I saw there was this whole big picture that I didn't really recognize or I didn't want to be part of because I was in the operational side. And yeah. We were dealing with bad guys and really, really, really bad people. And now you're, you know, your job is to liaison with the community and build relationships. It was totally different from what I was doing. Um, and then promoted to sergeant, became a field supervisor, and then I got an opportunity to, to now be a sergeant uh, over the community policing detail that I had previously been in uh, and then I did that for the rest of my career. Um, the other things I, I was involved in was uh, I was part of our trauma support team, which became our peer program. I did that for about 15 years. That became a very important part of my career um, mm. in the you know the wellness journey and kind of the work that I do now post-retirement was that trauma support team. And we both know Dr. Larry Blum pretty well. And Larry is uh, you know really one of my inspirations. Here I got to work around Larry a, um, a lot, and I learned so much from him. Uh, and then our crisis intervention team, our CIT program, I was a C, uh, coordinator for that. And that led me to be able to, again, relationship building with the hospitals and uh, the behavioral health units in the county. And all of a sudden I got to this, I was like this dumb kid from Oxnard that got to like get a seat at the table with executives from um, from from the county and from these organizations and, and the hospitals, like having meetings with the, the president and the CEO of the hospital because then understanding how important the, re the relationship is between the police department and the hospital because we're bringing a lot of clients. Oh, yeah. We're bringing them a bunch of people and there's a lot of uh, 
you know, stuff that happens in the emergency room with some of the people that we bring them. Yeah. Um, and then also, like I said, on the behavioral health side is, is working with the people that, that stir the drink on the mental health side for the county uh, and dealing with the, uh, the homeless population and the, the folks that are walking around with, with severe mental illness. Wow. Well, it sounds like a very um, in-depth, a um, lot of experience in your career, uh, not just the operational side, but moving over, like you said, to you know, uh, the community side, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of times people don't have a, a lot of officers. I, I know for me, I got involved in that too, but early on, I didn't really know much about it. Mm-hmm. And then you work it and you realize, oh, this is actually very important. You build those relationships, you know, and then you talk about your peer support, and officer wellness, uh, which is so important and which has become really a, a priority uh, today um, over time um, to watch out for our first responders and their wellness. Um, I want to talk about that in a lot more depth. Um, however, just briefly, I want to talk about some of the incidents that happened to you sure. that really, you know, in time, brought you to where you are today to help others, you know? Yeah. So you um, were involved in a shooting. I know prior to this um, conversation, you and I talked, um, you responded to another shooting that you weren't involved in but involved another officer um, friend who was shot um, and obviously traumatic and, um, and and a number of more uh, other incidents. So real quick, what are some incidents you were involved in your shooting, what you were exposed to with your friend, some other ones that you can bring up sure. and then we'll get to the officer wellness part and how you got there. Yeah. And I think, and, and thanks for, you know, kind of introducing that, but there's a, I definitely believe that there's a cumulative effect to doing the job. I had the honor to do it for 29 years and 33 if you count my military service. So 33 years of either you know serving my country or serving my community. And over the long haul, what I learned is that uh, you know I, I don't believe that one incident uh, is what gets a cop or firefighter. I think it's a it's a it's a cumulative effect mm. of all of this stuff that they get exposed to throughout their career, and at some point it it you know the the pot kind of gets full and stuff yeah. starts spilling over. There's a lot of different analogies about that cop stew, you know, your the glass of water that's overflowing, or you half full, or you half empty, right? You're, yeah. You know, but but that that happened to me uh, probably about 24 years into my career is where it finally got to a point. It's like, I, okay, I got to deal with this. So um, some of the stuff, so I, I was involved in two shootings and uh, one of them three years into my career, like you mentioned on the on the intro. And uh, and then the second one was where my partner um, shot an unarmed suspect and it was a, it was an accident. Um, but the, uh, the first shooting that I was involved in uh, was in Simi Valley, I had three years on and it was a, a man with a gun call and uh, a 19 year old girl uh, called and said, my dad is drunk. He's on prescription medication and, uh, he has a gun. He said, he's going to kill us all. And then he's going to kill himself. Hmm. And, uh, it was her and her two teen younger brothers. She was 19. And I think the boys were, you know, like 12 and maybe 14 or, you know, 11, 12, those, those ages. So there's three young people, uh, in their house and their dad is going around from room to room, um, trying to load guns. And they're, coming around behind him and hiding guns and they're hiding ammunition and their dad's threatening to murder them. Mm. Uh, that's the basics of what the, what the call was. Um, my, uh, and I had, I, I 
I always kind of forget this part. I had a, a ride along with me. I had an explorer that was with me, a 20 year old uh, explorer. And as I'm driving up to, to this call, I'm like talking through some things that we're going to do um, and telling him where he's going to be and what he's going to do. Because, you know, before we went on air, you know, you had mentioned a thing about like how some places have policies like, hey, if you're going to a certain kind of call, you need to stop, drop them off, right. tell somebody that I, you know, or tell them go to a pay. This is the days when they had to go to a pay phone. That hasn't changed. Right? And, um, but um, he, he, this guy was with me the whole way. And I kind of talked through, here's what I'm going to do. And this is what I want you to do. And one of the things I always told ride-alongs is that if we're in danger, something's happening, I want you to run away. Hmm. Go, get away from the car, get away from me, run away. And then, you know, go get help. But don't stay here, don't stay around. Um, if there's something dangerous, like if you feel like, you know, your life is in danger, run away, get away, okay? And we'll, we'll deal with what's happening. Um, but anyway, get up there and my academy classmate and I, Matt Hopkins, arrived together. So we're rolling code up into the in the hills in Simi Valley and we end up getting in trail and we arrived together and Matt was in front of me. And um, as we're parking the car, we see this girl who ends up being that 19-year-old girl that called. We just see this girl like start sprinting down the street towards us. And we had parked quite a ways away, like the house was like seven or nine houses hmm. away up the street. And we get out of the car. I get my shotgun. All I had at the time was a 12. This is 1995. Oh, yeah. All right. I have my pistol and then I have a shotgun. That's it. And I got, you know, four rounds of buckshot in the gun. That's it. We don't need, I don't have a side saddle on it. I don't have ghost ring sights. I got a, you know, a bead sight on the front. That's it, you know. Um, but get out and Matt says, um, hey, I'll, I'll talk to the RP, the reporting party. Cool. And I said, okay, I'll go up the street and try and get eyes on the front of the house. So move my, make my way up to the house and um i just kind of hide in the shadows and get myself across the street and get in a position where i'm straight across the street from the house they were calling it was really dark in front and so all right i'm up here and what my mindset was um, when i got up there was that this is going to turn into a um, standoff i'm thinking okay the the girl's out let's figure out where the other two young people are but my thought was is like and we're still the only ones there right so he's seven houses down the street i'm up there by myself across the street and my thought was is as the the troops start to arrive we're just going to deploy them start to set up a perimeter and then i'm thinking this will probably turn into a swat problem and they'll call the swat team and then we'll end up being out here for half the night you know? right yeah um so I'm across the street and I'm I'm concealed in the dark and I got a good view of the front of the house and there was a car parked the the wrong way in front of the house. Okay, I'm against the curb and um, it was parked back toward where we were coming from. And my partner Matt says the girl says that her 11 year old brother is sitting in front is sit is in the car that's parked the wrong way in front of the house. And about 30 seconds after he said that. I hear some yelling in the dark, and then I see the guy walking down the driveway of his house with a rifle in his hand. Mm. And he uh, he walks down the driveway, and he walks around the back of that car, and he goes up to the passenger window, and he extends his arm with his rifle, and he's aiming it into the glass. And I'm behind him across the street, and I, I'm going, oh my God, he's gonna murder this kid right in front of me. Mm. Yeah. and. I have a shotgun with buckshot. I can't shoot him from across the street because the the pattern of the, you know, I could hit the car, I could, you know, um, and I make the decision that I'm gonna rush him. Like mm -hmm. I have to 
create, I have to close the distance on him and get to a position where I can, um, I have to stop it, try and stop him. Right. And when I got up and started to move, he moved to the front of the car and he's standing in front of the car with his arm extended, um, pointed toward the, uh, the wind into the windshield of the car. And I start, I, and this all happens very quickly. I get up, I'm starting to move. He moves, he points the rifle toward the car. And that's when I start yelling at him. I mm. yelled probably something like police drop it. Um, but I start yelling at him. And when I, when I yell at him, I, I distracted him. I got his attention and he lowered the rifle and he turned this way and was looking down the street. He didn't know where I was. He turned away from me. And in the next driveway is a kid and the next door neighbor. And now I'm-, I'm Oh, they're I'm, outside? They're outside. There's like, by, I think it's just the neighbors, these right. bystanders in the next driveway. What I, when he turns, I see a lady and a kid, um, like a 10, 11 year old in the driveway. And he turns, and as soon as he turns, he takes a step and he starts to raise the rifle toward those people. And then that's when I engaged him. Um, so I fired a shot at him. Um, and he winced and he started turning towards me. The rifle's coming towards me. And, um, then I fired again and that's when I had a malfunction. Oh, wow. So when you talk, when I, when I talk to people about this incident, about, I'm 25 years old, don't have a lot of experience. I, yes, I was in the military, but I don't have any combat experience. I've got some basic training, but you know, when I fired that, shot at him i thought that he was going to be rolled up in a ball on the front yard and there'd be two sneakers in the street right because i thought okay now when i make this decision and i shoot at him with his shotgun that he's not going to be there anymore right it's going to be over and when the smoke cleared there's this you know second of this smoke that comes out of the end of the gun gives you blindness just just a split second but things are happening so fast or maybe things slow down so much that it seems like it's there longer and when that smoke cleared, he's still there. Like, oh shit! And it's, and it's nighttime. You said? It's night. Sorry, yeah, it's yeah. eight o'clock at night. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I fire. He and he and he starts to turn. Like he realizes that oh something just happened from over there, and the the rifle's turning towards me. So I cycle the shotgun, and click. I short rack the shotgun. Oh wow! Yeah. And I remember for a second rolling the gun over like what is wrong with this thing <laughs> right and and then and then i double tapped him so i i cleared the malfunction and then i hit him twice and knocked him down and um, stopped the problem but i just spent i don't know five minutes telling you a bit about this story and when you listen to the audio um of what happened what you hear is boom 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 but all this stuff that i experienced and that i saw that it seemed like it was taking so long, really only, you know, took a few seconds. Yeah. You know, to that sh fire that shot, I have a malfunction, clear the malfunction, and then lay two um, good shots um, on him, you know, in right right on top of each other. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Like as soon, you know, it was, so it happened very fast, but it, it takes a long time to describe. But, you know, um, anyway, so that that's what happened in that thing, man. Um, he goes down, and uh, I, I definitely experienced tunnel vision because when he went down, I hit him all through the midsection and the hip, 
and he's laying face down and the rifle is underneath his body. And as I'm coming up on him, he's rolling over and he's trying to pull the rifle out from underneath him. Mm. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to like shoot this guy again from really close range. And I'm screaming at him, don't do it, don't do it. I'm screaming, there's a, the way my recording, I didn't have an audio, there's no body camera. There was an open 911 line in the house oh. that I was yelling so loud that the phone line in the house heard the, oh, the muffled gunshots and me yelling at him, you know, don't do it, don't wow. do it. And I was screaming at him, don't do it. And I'm, and he's rolling over, um, trying to pull the rifle out from underneath his body. And uh, then he just collapsed. He just, you know, he ran out. And then that's when I see the barrel of a gun come into my view. And that's my partner, Matt, ah, who, yeah. while this all happened, is running up the street to come and help. And that's when my vision opened back up mm -hmm. because, you know, everything that I was looking at was like through a very narrow, the only thing that mattered is what he was doing and where that gun was pointed. Um, and then that's the first time where this other stimulus came from that actually caused me to look around, yeah, open up my field of vision. Okay. And like, okay, now you can read, like get back oriented to your surroundings. Um, so we, we, we hook him up to, he had a rifle in his hand. He had a hunting knife in his other hand and a pistol in his pocket. Wow. And that's what he came out of the, the house with. So the people that were on the driveway next door was the boy that was in the car. Oh, was at the next door neighbor's house. So that was a lady that lived next door. So what had happened between me getting there and this, the girl running out, uh, the boy had gotten out of the car and had just gone over to the neighbor's house. But he came out and he was hunting for his kids. Thinking the kid was in the car. He went to the car. He was looking for the car. I mean, he went and, lo and was looking into the car. He's pointing through the window and I can't see because it's dark. And then he's in the windshield. Like that my, my, uh, my thought process was like, oh my God. I, well, I'm not going to let him murder him. Right in front of me. You went with But that me. was what my, I was, it was terrifying um, to go like, oh my God. And then you also go like, what do you do? And then like once the switch flipped that it's on is that, you know, I if I look back at this 25 years later, I, I ambushed him. You know, he was in a position, I had an advantage. I had a tactical advantage over him because I could move on him. He doesn't know that I'm here yet. What's the best way to attack this problem? Right. You know, like- with you, if you fast forward 25 years, like I would have been across the street with a rifle that had a scope on, or like some kind of a, a four power, you know, yeah. and I would have, you know, I would have dealt with it from where I was, my positioning. I just didn't have that. That wasn't an option. I could have just stayed there and let it happen, or yeah. I'm like, you know, let's go. I'm, and I, that's what I did. I took the fight to him to stop him. And the advancement in uh, weapons being deployed mm -hmm. in the field with officers since then to today, mm -hmm. it's incredible. And and one of the major reasons for that, and I'm sure you know, is the, the North Hollywood shootout. Mm -hmm. You know, those officers were out, outgunned. Mm -hmm. A lot more officers than the two guys. Right. But they were they were hunting, um, I should say, they were, they were looking, uh, the officers, to find these rifles to mm -hmm. take these guys out to stop them from doing what they're doing. So, um, yeah, it, back then you did what you had to do. And, um, you know, you stop the problem. All three kids okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, well, it sounds like you- uh, And then he survived, and um, I was believe a, it or not. He, that was my next question. Yeah. yeah. Did he yeah. do prison time? No. Um, they ended up not charging him because, um, you know, not to go into too much into the weeds yeah, on this, yeah. is that the people that called and gave statements said this is what he was doing. In the aftermath, they changed their stories yeah. a bit about, you know, what they told people and then- you know, kind of the DA's 
perspective was, and I'm not saying they're wrong. They're like, he got his punishment. Yeah. Um, yeah. That day. Um, because you know, it, it, look, man, we stopped it and, uh, the kids are okay. And, uh, he, he didn't go to jail. Let's put it that way. But yeah. So, um, but you, you stopped the threat. Mm-hmm. So good, good, good for you on your part. Yeah, thank you. Um, so you, you were talking about the, the, the cumulative, you know, um, uh, what happens over a long career in law enforcement or firefighters, uh, this just being, it's a major incident, but um, you said early on that you had experienced a few things maybe that your grandfather had experienced after coming back from World War II. You were involved in this shooting, another shooting uh, that your your uh, partner um, shot somebody who was unarmed. Um you uh, another friend of yours was shot that you rode with in an ambulance, but all these other things. Another one of my friend was shot that you know may yeah. have been a guest on this podcast. So let me let me back up. That's a very good okay. point. So just so people you know watching or listening real quick. So our um, second episode of this podcast was of an officer uh, from the El Segundo Police Department, Ray Garcia, who at the time was a lieutenant working overtime. Anyways, he was involved in a shooting where Ray and his partner were both shot. Ray was shot point blank in mm-hmm. the face, um, recovered. Um, ultimately, he and his partner shot the, the suspect, killing him. But Ray returned to work, uh, you know, after being shot in the face point blank four months later. So it turns out in our conversation, as we got to know each other, you said, oh, I served with Ray and Ray in the Marine Corps and uh, small world. Yeah. Uh, and you, you were just... Because of this podcast, you'd said, you know, you reconnect with Ray and met with him a week or two ago, had lunch and uh, shared some some good memories. So Ray being shot in the face. Then another partner of yours, uh, real quickly, was he was, you were not there, but he was on an incident and he was also in a gun battle, a shooting and shot in the face. Yeah. He got shot, he he got hit right in the chin. Right in the chin. Okay. And did he survive? He did. Yeah. And you responded to that scene, you said, and Mm -hmm. rode to the ambulance. And how, how, what, I mean- what do you experience when you come upon a scene and there's your friend um, who you think could do, could die, who was, you know, shot in the face? Yeah. So to kind of back up and give you the the story on that. Well, in 2006, um, my friend and his partner, they both got shot on a traffic stop. Um, but earlier in that shift, we were riding together. And so I had my, my first shooting a few months later. Uh, in Simi Valley, uh, Michael Clark uh, was shot and killed on a check the well-being call. That was my first SWAT call out ever. I was a brand new guy in the SWAT call SWAT team, and my first call out was the murder of a police officer, and he was the first officer to be killed in the line of duty um, in the history of Simi Valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a lateral from LAPD, former Marine, um, and but that was my first uh, call out and. So, you know, dealing, I had dealt with my, my first, um, you know, death of a colleague. He was the first person that I ever worked with that had, um, got seriously injured and, uh, and, and he didn't survive, um, his injury. So that was tough. Um, and then there was like, when you're talking about this cumulative effect, there's two officers that I worked with in Simi Valley that took their own lives, committed suicide. Um, and then, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my, my friends that, that got shot in 06, Ray got shot in 08. Um, it was a total of five people that I worked with throughout my career that that took their own lives. Um, many more that were injured in car accidents and shootings and just, you know, being exposed to a lot of, uh, you know, I left 
Simi Valley to go to a busier city, and I got what I asked for. Sure. You know, there was yeah. a lot going on. And, you know, work, when you work Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, you're going to go to see some kind of violence um, every night. Yeah. You know, and usually multiple times per night. Um, but uh, the incident that happened in, in 06 was, uh, was my last night in the gang unit. So I was finishing up an eight-year run in the gang unit and on the SWAT team. And, like, I had two years of SWAT experience and seeing me. So I was just finishing basically 10 years of, of my time on, on the SWAT team. And, in the, um, and it was my last night. And we were riding three-man on a Friday night. And it was me and my partner and um, the guy that, that ended up getting shot was in the back seat. He was our sergeant. I'm not going to say his name because I just, I don't, you know, we didn't talk about this with him and I'll just, sure. um, but, uh, we had spent the first five, six hours riding together. We had you know gone to other man with the gun calls. We assisted with a vehicle pursuit and we were very good friends, uh, at the time. And, but we were working, um, we were in the gang units. We were doing uniform gang enforcement. We had a bunch of people that were in on overtime. We had had um, a series of uh, violent crimes that had happened. So it was like Friday night where, you know, uh, mass, uh, you know, enforcement where we're going and just, you know, going from neighborhood to neighborhood um, and, you know, addressing problems. And about six, seven hours into the shift, we had stopped by the station to, you know, probably get a cup of coffee or use the restroom. We were walking out the back door and one of the guys that was working with us um, was was going to go 10-8, get in service. You know, he was walking to his car, and my buddy's like, hey, man, where's your partner? And he said, oh, she's doing paperwork. She's got to do some reports, so I'm going to go out by myself. So he said, so he uh, goes and jumps in with, with him. Mm. And then me and my partner joke, like, man, we've been trying to get rid of the Sarge all night. <laughs> Finally, you know. Yeah, you it know, worked. Just teasing. Yeah, and, yeah good. Yeah. You know? And they leave, and me and my partner leave, and we go to the south end of town, and um, – we're, we were on a ped stop and um, we hear them make a traffic stop. And, you know, about a minute, minute and a half later, they're fighting for their lives. Um, they, the guy that was in the back seat of the car that they had stopped had a gun. He was a, um, a gang member that, uh, uh, you know, they were going to get him out of the car. They could see he was acting squirrely. There was a couple of females in the front seat and they went to go get him out of the car. And uh, while they were pulling him out of the car, um, my buddy got shot point blank. Uh, in the chin and as he's falling back the guy comes out and starts shooting at his partner and he gets shot through both of his legs literally through his knees he had two rounds through one of his knees and one round through his, the knee on the other leg and his legs basically get cut out from underneath hmm. him and he's down on the ground um, and uh, I'll call him John John goes down and he's face first laying in the on the ground holding his throat because that round hit him in the jaw went down into his into his neck. Oh. And then his partner falls back, you know, from getting hit in the legs and he's just sitting on his ass, laying down cover fire into this car and putting out this traffic, shots down, you know, officer down, two officers down, one officer has a headshot, you know, and he's um he I think he goes he gets into his second magazine. Uh, just you know, firing into this car to you know, repel the suspect from coming out. And um, when me and my partner get there, you know, we were definitely not the first ones there, but there's probably 15 cops there. But the scene that we drove into, um, they were searching for the suspect. He had put out a direction of travel and people were in that area and people that I worked with on our team were getting in that area. And we were driving into the intersection where he got shot. And my intention was we're going to go here. We, we turn left because we're going to where the, they're looking for the bad guy. 
right? And as we were pulling up there, they said they found them, that they were taking them into custody. So I just stopped. And when I got out of my car, what I see is my friend laying face down on the concrete in full uniform in the street, holding his throat. And that's like the image that's burned into my mm. mind is this guy laying face down and all the other, you know, chaos that's happening around that. And the other guy, um, you know, just you could see the anguish on his face because of his gunshot injuries. Oh, yeah. Right. And the EMS wasn't there yet. And, um, you know, and then I ended up um, staying with him the, um, for the rest of the night. You know, I, I rode in the ambulance with him and uh, went to the hospital with him. And one of the things that I'll never forget um, is that you know, he thought he was going to die. Mm. And we're driving in the ambulance and I'm just trying to keep him calm. The paramedics in there, they, really, they weren't really treating him because they just, he's alert, he's, he's awake. You know, he's, uh, so they were saying he ended up, he was complaining about his side. And he ended up, he had taken a second round in his body armor um, oh. in his side, which we, we figured that out later. Um, but we didn't see an exit wound anywhere. Like, so we thought that the round that hit him in the face was, you know, in his body. And he, he was married. His wife was my friend and he's telling me to call his wife and I'm trying to stop it. Like, look, we have proceed. There's procedures that are supposed yeah. to, there's supposed to be a way of like when, when, one of your people gets hurt, the watch commander is going to go through a checklist of what they do and try and do it a certain way. Right. But in the back of a speeding ambulance with a guy that, um, you know, is not, was not taking no for an answer. You know, he, he made me call his wife mm. and, um, she didn't answer. She was asleep. Oh, wow. Thank goodness. Yeah. And, but then the next phone call I made was to my wife. And, um, that's when I saw the strength uh, really of, of my wife, because I called her up and I said, Hey, John got shot. I don't, he's, he's, he's alert. I need you to go to so-and-so's house and I need you to go pound on the door and go wake her up. And then you guys come to the hospital. Mm. And she went, okay. And she did that, you know, and, and, um, and, and did it in a, uh, an amazing way and, and brought her to the hospital. Um, but we get to the ER and then in the next bay, they bring in his partner and this is, this is a sheet dividing, you know, the trauma oh, yeah. rooms and, and these guys start yelling at him and they're like, Hey, is that you? <laughs> yeah. Sarge, are you okay? I'm here. It's going to take more than one headshot to put me down. Oh, wow. You know, he says that. That's what he said. That's going to take more than one headshot to put me down. And they just were yelling back at each other, you know, like, you good? Are you good? <laughs> and it was just, it was so powerful. Yeah. It was so powerful oh, the what strength. they were doing. Yeah. Right. Um, because they were hurt really bad. Yeah. They were hurt really bad. And they both, you know, they both returned to work for a period of time. And eventually they both ended up having to retire uh, medically. But, um, that that day was one of the big ones of um, on the trauma side. Yeah, because um, you know it, it was it 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 was bad. You know, seeing something like that, especially with people that you care about. Of course, yeah. Um, so just you know, going back to what we just mm -hmm. said, um, what you just talked about. So you know, uh, you have your friend Ray uh, shot in the face. Mm -hmm. You have your shooting that you were involved in your partner was involved in a shooting that you were there for of an un unarmed uh, suspect. Um, the Sarge being shot in the face, you write a good friend of yours, his partner being shot in 
the knees, both knees. Uh, thankfully, they both survived. Um, all the other things over a long career working, you know, Simi Valley, but then, you know, going to a, a busy, you know, Oxnard city, uh, being exposed to all those things, even as a detective working those violent crimes. Um, your wife, you know, uh, having cancer. Um, and just a number of other things. Obviously, they build up. And um, based on that, what are some of the things you experienced personally um, where you thought, because um, we talked prior, mm-hmm. what are some things that you went through and experienced before you said, I, I need to look into this for myself yeah. and my family? Yeah. And as I start to describe those things, the, the thing I want to tell the other first responders or anybody that's, you know, realizes that they're being impacted by the trauma is that, that number one, it's normal. Number two, it's fixable. And number three, the most important thing is don't wait five years to address it because you think it's going to go away or you're not sure what to do. Uh, if, 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 if there was anything I could tell people, it'd be, it, it's okay to raise your hand, you know, find someone that you trust and that can point you to the, to, you know, a therapist or a counselor or just a, a peer to, you know, to talk this stuff through. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not going crazy. It's just, you know, that the, the stuff that uh, people say in our world is, you know, a, a normal reaction to, you know, abnormal situations. And, and we go to those things hundreds of times in our careers. Um, yeah. So um, what was I experiencing? What, what I, when I knew that some stuff was going wrong, was I, I mentioned Dr. Blum. So I spent a lot of time going to training with Dr. Blum. He's a, he's a police psychologist, very well known in Southern California. And he really an, a, a leading expert in, uh, you know, uh, police psych, uh, psychology issues and, and stress management. And we would be in training. Uh, I was on the peer support team, the trauma support team, the wellness, you know, component of the department. And he was training us and, and he'd be going and he'd, and he'd have his PowerPoint up and there would be a list of symptoms that people may experience when they're dealing, when, when they're ex- experiencing post-traumatic stress. And he would just read off the list and I'd be in a group of, you know, 20 of my peers and I'd be like, I have that. Yeah, I have that. Oh yeah, I've had that for two years. Yeah, I'm actually experiencing that right now, right that, right that. And inside I was saying, raise your hand. Right. The guy's right there, like right where you're at. He's right, he's right there. Talk to him and tell him like what's going on. And I, my own ego, my own, maybe my fears also of like addressing this stuff. Um, but I, that, those for me were like the beginnings of knowing. So what was happening? Uh, nightmares. Mm. Um, I started, uh, I, I started having nightmares, um, sleep problems, um, uh, hypervigilance, you know, toward the end. Um, but the big things that were happening is that I was getting withdrawn. Mm. So, um, if I could just like paint a little picture of some stuff that you there, there's a bunch of critical incidents that happened that didn't all involve me, but there's like, you know, um, seeing violence repeatedly for years. And then people that I worked with that that completed suicide a couple that i worked with that tried to commit suicide and thankfully they're still here with us today um people that i worked with that were seriously injured in car accidents that were attacked by suspects that 
you know, they tried to push them off balconies, that they were, they got uh, assaulted, that pe they got shot, some were killed. And, you know, over time, that started to um, affect me. And one of the ways that it was affecting me is that I started getting hypervigilant. And some of that hypervigilance was um, trying to sleep. I kept having these nightmares that uh, hoodlums were trying to break into my house. Mm, yeah. And I was afraid to go to sleep because if I go to sleep, then I can't, I'm like, I don't want to get caught slipping. Right. Right. Felt like if I, when I fall asleep, like I'm not going to hear that noise in the middle of the night. Or what if somebody kicks my door in and you go, why in the world would you think something like that? Well, when you go to dozens of crime scenes of some person that was asleep in their house and some crazy lunatic kicked in their front door and started stabbing them, right? You start to worry about your own family, right? Right, and and um, you know there was a couple of incidents where somebody, one particular that I think I never really thought about for a long time, but it's like a normal regular person was asleep in his apartment, and a person kicked in his front door and violently stabbed him to death while his girlfriend or wife was in his bed. But the person that he actually meant to attack was on the floor below him in the same apartment. Like oh. He was trying to kill somebody. Yeah. But he went into an innocent person's house and he killed the wrong person with mm. their baby sleeping on the floor and his wife was in bed with him. You know, and then just dozens of things yeah. like that that you see where, and then, but you're pretty good about putting walls up about, right? You put a wall up around the fort. Oh, yeah. And then what Dr. Blum taught me is that there are things that start to get inside the fort. They, they start to get inside the walls of the fort because it, it, there's too much of it or you just not, you know, I, I look back at it and go, and it's like it's it's all stress management. Right. And then if you don't offload some of that stuff, then um, kind of you kind of get full. And then every time something else happens, it just amplifies yeah. everything. And then. Um, on the street, like um, in the early part of being a field supervisor, is that I got extremely hypervigilant where, uh, and this is in the era also of, remember the Dallas Five? That oh, were, yeah. Okay, that were killed at the BLM yep. uh, thing. And then there were some Louisiana cops that got ambushed. Somebody yep. calls 911, they put in a fake call, get some cops to come in there, and then somebody starts shooting at them and trying to murder them. And the cops and so and then more things where you have these ambush these things are happening and then you start to get hyper vigilant like you don't want to get caught slipping right that, that like to have some car pull up next to you and you weren't paying attention and there was somebody in oh, the yeah. car that wanted to hurt you or when you're on a call trying to focus on the people that you're supposed to be talking to you're constantly looking around you because you don't want somebody to to walk up on you right you know that that might not be good. And what, and what happens is that I started getting really hypervigilant about stuff like that. And the one example that I can think of is just working the, the graveyard shift, the morning shift, we called it. And I was just sitting at an intersection and I'm waiting for the light turn. Let's pretend it's midnight and there's nobody really around me. And um, I'm sitting there at this red light waiting and waiting and waiting. And all of a sudden I just snapped my head to the side because I felt like I wasn't paying attention. Oh, wow. Right, I was like, and you were you aware. Start, you were aware of yourself I, doing that, and I caught, yeah, and I yeah. knew, and I caught myself do that. And I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? Yeah. But what happened is like there was this this hyper vigilance. That was one example of it of it happening where I felt like I'm not, I wasn't paying. I'm waiting. No, what does a normal person do? They're at, 
you're at a traffic light and you're waiting for the light to change and then we do. But a police officer in a black and white in the full uniform is constantly scanning their surroundings yep. for things that are happening in the community and then also potential threats to you, you know? Yeah. And um, so, I mean, that's what hypervigilance, I mean, there's more, but I mean, that was one thing. And I, um, um, you know, a, a story that, that, uh, that involved my kids were, so when my son was old enough to drive and we let, you know, he has a curfew and um, when he gets home, he has to, you need to check in. Like, hey, if we're asleep, you don't just come home and like right. go in your room. Right. And when you come in, yeah. and uh, one one night, um, and this was, I was still, I was still an officer at this time, and my son came in, and um, and he walks up to the side of my bed, and he's like, Dad, Dad, and I sat up with a C clamp, and I was reaching for his throat, hmm. and I and and I chased him halfway across or ch halfway out of bed. And my dad, my son is yelling, dad, 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 because I'm coming at him, like grabbing at his, wow. at his neck. And so from that point on, the kids would always just touch my toe when they <laughs> came in. They touched my foot, you know, or maybe get something and, and push me. Yeah. Right. And when you asked me like, how do you, the stuff that happened with my grandfather, my mom told me that when, um, she, she, when she was young, she went into my grandfather's room. And he, when he's sleeping flat on his back, he, he slept like this with his hands across his chest. And he said, well, that I slept that way when I was, because in case if the Japs snuck into your camp at night, at least you could, we were protecting your heart. Like if they tried to stab you, they, it wouldn't, hmm. it would be harder for them to get to your heart. Wow. Yeah. 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 And similar thing, my mom had told me a couple of, you know, something else, similar thing, like, you know, you didn't, you don't startle your dad when he's asleep. Right. You know, and so yeah. you get to get that startle response of like you, you come up fighting. Oh, and then that's kind of what happened is that when he woke me up, I, in my mind, it was just like you went to red alert and, you know, we're going to push back against what it was that, you know, you thought was a, a threat to you. Yeah. And um, so you, you got help. Yeah. So I um, I was having I'd been having nightmares for two years straight. So. Mm. One of the I had there was this theme. There was other stuff, but there was this common theme of like bad people trying to break into my house. And what happened is I I would like start to fall asleep and I would wake back up. And it was I think as time went on, I was almost like afraid to fall asleep because I knew that when I fell asleep, I was going to have a nightmare because I literally oh, yeah. yep. I literally had nightmares every night for at least two years straight. And so I was getting to the point of where I I knew what was happening. So that's the whole thing, but. I was part of our wellness program for, you know, total of about 15 years. But at this time, it's like, you know, t at least 10 years at this point. And I'm like, I know what's happening. Like, I know what these things mean. It's like, I think I might have post-traumatic stress. Mm. Um, and, but I was afraid to, uh, I just kept putting it off. I'd always find a reason to put it off. And then one day I was sitting in a training and somebody was talking about um, um, dealing with uh, mentally ill veterans and they were talking about just interacting with veterans in the community uh, it was the war years and that there's veterans out in the community that have post-traumatic stress and here's some tips to you know uh, deal with them and it was uh, she was a psychologist and she wrote her I'm sorry she was a mar MFT marriage fan yep. she wrote her name and her phone number up on the board and there's all these trainings we go to where people write their name oh, yeah. up on the board nobody ever calls no but I wrote it down and I called her and I said you know hey here's what's going on and um, could you 
you know, maybe connect. I don't know who to call. You could you you think you could connect me with somebody? I should call me back a few hours. Here's a couple phone numbers for you to call. And what happened though is that I I trusted that person, and that which is really a um, an important thing. I mean, for any first responder agency, it's like how do you build trust with your people so that they feel safe to come forward and ask for some help. But I felt like I trusted that person. I knew her previously. I'd been to some other meetings with her. And I felt like I could trust her and she would like point me in the right direction. Uh, and then I, I called the therapist and uh, I went saw this person for six months. And I did EMDR, which is a, a technique that helps unlock trauma. And, you know, I, I don't have nightmares anymore. But like it took years of me kind of suffering. Yeah. Uh, unnecessarily to, to, to finally go and ask for some help. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what I advocate now for with, with people is trying, you know, it's really about building trust. People have to trust you because I, and then you can have your own like pity party too. You go like, oh, I have post-traumatic stress. Right. Like you put some label on yourself. Yeah. And then you got to go like, whoa, man, hey, you know, Larry always talked about like all that pain and that trauma that you experience, wear it as a badge of honor. Hmm. Right? You're taking on all of the, the community's troubles, right? And it's totally normal for people to get to a point where like, hey, something's happening here where this is more than I can handle and I need some help, you know? And Jocko always talk, talks about on his podcast about like, you know, like if your car was clunking down the road, you'd go see a mechanic because a mechanic knows how to work on your car. That's well, right. there's mind mechanics out there yeah. that know how to help people deal with trauma Right, but we're we're more afraid to to go ask for the the mind mechanics because it's scary and it's voodoo and it's personal. It's per, yeah, and sometimes you don't want to hear the truth on what you need to do. Yes, you know yeah. uh, to fix that clunk uh, or that noise uh, to get you um, better. Yeah, and then you know the other thing that I think was a little bit I'll say scary is that I've been stuffing this stuff down for twenty years. And now I'm going to open up Pandora's box and I'm uh, like, I'm going to have to deal with like all this stuff yeah. that I pushed down. Yeah. And it was a painful experience to deal with it, but it was probably the best thing I could have ever done. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure people around you, your wife, your kids, family, coworkers, friends, uh, may have seen, you know, some of the mm -hmm. things that were going on and the fact that you, face reality and said, I need to deal with this shit, right? Like now. And you did. Uh, I'm sure they're grateful uh, yeah. that you did that. Yeah. And I thought that I was hiding it from them. Yeah. And they were talking, you know, privately behind my back <laughs> going like, come over like, is today good? Is dad? <laughs> dad today? Yeah. You know, you find that out years later, but there yeah. was, there was a particular Thanksgiving where, um, this last thing I guess I'll say about this. When I talk about being withdrawn, like what are being withdrawn? I didn't want to interact with anyone in my family. Hmm. My family's all in the kitchen. They're cooking Thanksgiving. Everyone's at our house, my kids, my in-laws, probably a couple other people. And I'm sitting in the living room by myself, drinking a beer. And I just wanted to go sit in the garage by myself. Hmm. I just wanted to be alone. Yeah. All the people that I love are actually right here. They're all in the, they're all in the room. Yeah. They're all, they're all right there. And I was getting so kind of emotionally damaged that I just, I just wanted to be, I wanted it to be quiet. I wanted to, I just wanted to go in the garage and just be by myself. 
and mm. I wasn't enjoying anything that was happening. Everybody else is laughing. Yeah. Girls are cooking and everybody's having a good time. And I'm sure all of them were like, what's wrong with dad? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I'm, I'm there's many, many times I'm sure they had those conversations like, why is dad looking that way? Or, you know, what's wrong? Yeah. You know, when you sit, you know, for 25 years with your back up against the wall at every restaurant that you eat in, you know, you, you know, you just, you, you see all the, the, you see a lot of the good stuff in the community, but usually seeing the other side of yeah. what's going on in town. Yeah. And that, that, that the habits of sitting, you know, Hey, I need, I need, to, I need that booth. I need the mm. wall behind me. You know, for me, that has not changed. I mean, there's so much that I'm still doing in, mm. uh, it, to this day, after being in you know in law enforcement for 33 years, you know being married since 1997 and you know kids, um, I they get on me about certain things like my driving I, and I'm like girls I'm looking, and they're like no you're not I'm like they don't realize that is you are looking but your head's not on a swivel you're yeah. there's an art to it you've been doing right. it for so long, um, so yeah I still yeah. sit obviously with my my back up against the wall, so. Okay. Well, I'm glad um, that you you sought that help and, and you're doing things uh, to to work with you know that public safety advocacy and being an advocate for the first responders. What are some of the organizations that you work with, and what are you doing today to help to help others? Yeah. So t- today I'm working with First Responder Wellness, and it's a treatment center, residential treatment for public safety, and the only people that we take care of are cops, firefighters, dispatchers, paramedics. Um, you know, some federal people, secret squirrels, DEA, FBI. But, you know, it's a place for when the wheels fall off and somebody's um, dealing with post-traumatic stress or alcoholism, uh, addiction, depression, anxiety. It's a place for them to, to get well and take care of, you know, the stuff that I was dealing with six, eight years ago uh, and longer ago that um, thousands of first responders like us are, are dealing with. And, um, but... We only we only help them, and that's that's what I love about um, the organization is that you know when I when I retired I wanted to continue to help cops and I wasn't sure what that was going to look like right and you know for almost two years that that I've been retired I've I've been uh, I worked for a nonprofit for a year and a half and then uh, for the last six months or so I've been with First Responder Wellness and um, you know like I just I'm part of a a really high performing team that has a mission to help public safety. And, you know, and that's what we do. Um, and uh, all that stuff that I that I went through, you know, one of the things that we, we didn't um, talk about is uh, uh, my wife uh, had cancer, you know, you know, in the middle of all this. And, the, you know, I got hurt in a really uh, freak accident where I broke my back. And um, I, I'm really lucky that I'm not paralyzed right now. Mm. Uh, but I fractured a vertebrae. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, it's a miracle that I, I wasn't paralyzed when that happened. And I had to have a, a back surgery, and I really thought that my career was over. I thought that I just ruined my whole career, and now because it was an off-duty incident that where I, where I got hurt. So I have I got six screws in my back and a couple rods, and I can I can't get up out of a chair by myself. And so three weeks after I have the surgery, my wife gets diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And so you have all the trauma from work, and then you have other, some stuff in your personal life, and then you have uh, really a catastrophic injury and my wife has cancer and I don't know if this is going to kill her. Right. Like, or what, what's our life going to be like? And really felt like the walls, you know, were so that cumulative thing. It's not just 
work stuff. Some right. people have childhood trauma. I got, you know, kind of pulled away from my family when I was nine years old when we moved to California. And I'm not saying that like that caused anything, but it's like people have been through some significant things from when they were kids. Oh yeah. And then you get the stuff that you get exposed to in the first responder community. And I got hurt really bad. My wife has a deadly disease that um, we have to go through. And what happened is that all of these people came together and helped us. So our peer support program, our neighbors, the you know the community, people did a little fundraiser for us. And um, you know when I talked to my uh, like the administrators that were at the department, they didn't think I was coming back. They're like, oh, "This dude's done, man." Yeah. Like, oh he's, yeah. Oh, that. Let's we're gonna help him and support him best we can. But you know they pretty much thought like McGreevy's done, and I thought maybe I'm done too. Because I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to recover from this well enough, you know, strong enough to get back to work. And I and I did, but I, I had to work really hard and fight through and then support my wife. And then what happened is that, like, we were both hurt and sick together. And going through that together made a, our marriage stronger than ever. And the other thing that happened is that when I got back to work, I had a tremendous sense of loyalty to the department. Right. Because some people feel abandoned. Some people get cut off. Some people don't get very well taken care of. And I felt like to the best that they could, individually, people were there for us. And organizationally, the depart the department, you know, gave me, put me in a position where I could heal and get better and continue to serve. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of jumping around here. Something that happened right before I broke my back is I got skipped for promotion. So I was sitting number one on the sergeant's list, and I thought I was going to get promoted. And then I found out that they had made a different decision and that they were going to skip me. Mm. So I was embarrassed. Yeah. It was humiliating. I felt like I failed my family, like, you know, because you want to do a little bit better, mm -hmm. make a little bit more money. You got 20 years on the job. You think you're ready for a leadership assignment in the organization. And um, I really had to think long and hard about how I handled that because people go, we talked about this last week, right? About people go, you can become a malcontent. Oh yeah. An anti-department, an anti-administration and blame everybody else. It's their fault. They're screwing me over. And you know, and that, and the, the path that I chose is that step back and look at yourself and what you're, you've been doing. You've obviously done something to give somebody the feeling that we don't think he's ready or something that you've done in the past that you're not forgiven for right. yet. Oh yeah. Right. And it takes time. Right. Yeah. And what I wanted to do was, um, was prove them wrong that, okay, I'm not, whatever it is that you're concerned about, I need to prove to you. I need to show you I have to build trust with you that this is what I'm going to do and right. this is what I want to do. And I want to serve the organization. I want to try and be a good sergeant. I want to advance my career. And that was the mentality I took. But right when that happened, I broke my back. Wow. Right. So, you know, there's, there's just like all this compiling stuff and like it's cumulative. Yeah. There's this cumulative stuff going on. Like I just, you think, oh man, now I'm not going to get promoted for two years. Now I, I have a broken back and I have a hospital bed in the living room of my house and people have to help me get in and out of bed and I can't do anything by myself. Right. People have to help me 
walk to the bathroom and walk back to my little, you know, bed that's in the, the good, the good thing about, you know, being hurt in 2012 is that Breaking Bad was on. <laughs> you got to uh, yeah. binge watch. So yeah. I got to binge watch, you know, oh, yeah. everything, but yeah. Breaking Bad, you know, all these series, but wow. um, coming out of that, um, that, and all the stuff that my, my wife and I went through the next time I took the sergeant's test, I was number one on the list. And it was because I think I showed them that hey, I've matured and um, they, they saw that this guy doesn't quit. doesn't mean like I was going to give up on the promotion, but right. my goal was I want to show you guys that, yes, I, 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 I can be an effective leader. I do have something to offer as a field supervisor and, and, and I, you know, I made them feel comfortable with like, okay, we're going to promote this guy. And you know, that, that guy that, um, was probably one of the voices of skipping me. Um, he pulled me in his office in 2018 and said, Hey, this year you're going to be supervisor of the year. Wow. And so you look how, I mean, like what, where you can go from one extreme to the other. Oh, if you just, have some humility and try and think about somebody else's perspective and look at yourself and yeah. go like, all right, this isn't their fault. Yeah. This is my fault. And I need to, I need to, what do you, okay. You have it in you, but you, you gotta, you need to show them. So, right. And, and that's how learning how this, how this, you know, the drink gets stirred. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, you got it. Yeah. You have to be open to that and to, to learn. Yeah. So, uh, that's a lot. That's a lot to go through, yeah. and uh, uh, at work and away from work at home, and involving you know the love of your uh, life, your wife, and and all that. Um, so kudos to you for addressing those issues and uh, understanding there's something going on, and not blaming others, and not becoming a malcontent, but um, uh, reflecting back on how you can improve and and do well, and it paid off. So uh, congratulations Thank on you. that. So. Um, tell me about Echelon Front. What exactly um, is Echelon Front? What do they do, and who's involved in that? Yeah, so you know, Echelon Front is is really famous because of Jocko Willink and and Leif Babin. They're, uh, they're the the co-founders of that, and you know, they wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. And you know, when I go and speak to groups, and I've got this slide in my presentation, I said there's two things that changed my life, and it was raising my hand to say that I need to get some help. And then reading Extreme Ownership, and those two things kind of happen at the same time in 2015. Mm. But uh, yeah, Echelon Front is a, a leadership consulting company, um, and you know I got um, heavily involved in in um, studying the leadership principles from Extreme Ownership because when I read the book, everything just clicked for me like this. Everything made sense, and it wasn't like they were teaching me something that's that's new. It was the way that they packaged it and presented it. It made sense for me. And then what happened is I started um, really uh, using those principles to the way I made every decision that I was making, whether it was dealing with one of my personnel or a tactical scenario or, uh, you know, a strategic thing where uh, really the relationship part of like, you know, building relationships up and down the chain of command. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I really had to think that stuff through. And I mean, we could probably do, a, I think, a podcast on on relationship building oh. and about, the, you know, dealing with the chain of command. It's so and, important. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a. Definitely, uh, we may. That's a good good idea. We uh, I, I'd love to do that because I, I think it's and I have my own experience. Like I was just a sergeant, but man, getting to build trust with your chief and your assistant chief, 
Um, that's how you get stuff done. And what yeah. I learned is like the more trust that my bosses had with me, the more operational freedom I had. Oh, totally. Yeah, you're right. right? Because oh, yeah. they also could have kept me on a very short leash and um, only allowed me to do certain things. But what happened is that I built trust with my bosses, you know, and if I did, you know, get too close to the line, we would talk about what the line was and then it get, well, you know, my, usually I'm like the guy that like, hey, I only make that mistake once and that's what you want. Yeah, people yeah. Are, People make mistakes or you say something maybe you shouldn't have said or you do something that like, that didn't work out quite exactly as I was hoping, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. You know, you take a chance or you do something maybe a little bit aggressive, uh, meaning like an aggressive tactic, you know, not right. aggression toward people. Um, and then, you know, you ha somebody talks to you about, hey, what their concern was like that, you know, and then go, you're making adjustments and going, yeah, and and it let's and and maintain that's how you maintain the trust with them uh is that you know you're keeping them informed and um you know you're you've got the kind of the the intent of what they want done and then transferring that down to your team so we can try and you know achieve what the mission is but um but yeah echelon fronts a, a leadership consulting business and uh um, i started going to their trainings back in 2016 and um now i'm just over the last two going on three years uh, I'm part of their muster crew hmm. and what I do is I just go and I support the the operations of the muster meaning like uh, helping with registration and getting people where they need to be and just helping with whatever it is that uh, is needed they've got a they've got a whole uh, crew of people that do stuff and and myself and about six other people are are uh, part of their muster crew and we just we go to the different events and um, you know I think it's amazing because I get to talk with people that are that are just like me, when I went to my first event, they're so excited to be there. They've never been to a, an ex, Echelon Front training before. They're excited to meet Jocko or meet Leif or, you know, other folks on the on the team, JP Donnell. And uh, oh, yeah. and I, I think about that's how I was in 2016. I was like, man, I can't wait to meet these guys. And But, um, you know, they, by repeatedly getting exposed to the training, it really helped me with my, my career professionally and I think in my personal life too. My wife and I are, are, uh, we both, uh, you know, participate and, and practice this together. Oh, that's awesome. That book, uh, I had heard before the book came out. I don't know if I read something about it. I heard about it. Uh, but I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to order this book. So I pre-ordered that book and it came and I read it. Uh, phenomenal book, but now we're talking, I'm like, and I still have it, obviously. I'm like, I, I need to crack that thing open and, and read it again. It is, a, it is a good read. It's not just for first responders. I mean, I highly encourage people if they have not read that book to read the book. Um, and you know, Jocko's podcast obviously is uh, phenomenal. Um, so good, good. And I see you're wearing a shirt. Uh, Discipline equals freedom. Where'd you get the shirt? And I know, got yeah. I was uh, down in San Diego last week at Victory MMA, and it's a gym that's owned by Jocko. And I, I was at a uh, the Porat conference was down mm -hmm. there. And we were eating dinner right around the corner from where the gym is. And I was talking to my colleague who'd never heard of extreme ownership before. And I said, well, the, his gym's right around the corner. I'm going to, I'm going to go buy a shirt. Like, let's go over there. Yeah. And we went in there and I was telling her about extreme ownership and there was books there. So she actually bought a book and then we were getting ready to leave. And the girl that was ringing us out said, Jocko's upstairs. If you want to, if you want to go upstairs, go, you're welcome to go up there and you can go see what's going on. He's teaching mm -hmm. a class right now. So we went upstairs and, you know, it's cages up there. They were doing oh. MMA, uh, not MMA, but uh, jujitsu training. And uh, Dean Lister was up there with him. And we just, I just went up there and I was walking. And I said, yeah, that's Jocko there. And that's Dean Lister. And Jocko looks up at me and he gives me a little nod. He's like, 
comes over. He's like, hey, what are you doing here, man? Yeah. We're not friends or anything. He just, he knows who I am because I, I come to his, um, his events and he was really nice. And so he saw that, that she had a book and he was kind enough to, to sign her book for her. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, a huge supporter of, of what Echelon Front does and, um, you know, honored to be able to volunteer and be part of their, their, uh, muster crew. Because I think that what the the training that they're providing to first responders and to the business community is is really top notch and second to none. And and what what's great about going to the to these trainings that they call a muster, uh, they do them three times a year, is that there is business executives from every industry that you can think of, aerospace, plumbers, construction, IT people, book publishers, medical industry. There's a uh, there's folks from the uh, uh, the, the Catholic Church, you know, uh, uh, you know, and there's just people that are every, and you see all this diverse people from all over the country and internationally. There was people at this last one I was at from Canada, uh, the UK, Australia, oh, wow. people that fly in from all over the world now to go to this training. And we're all kind of, um, we're all different, but there's a similarity that we have is that we're, we're really intrigued by this book, Extreme Ownership and, and what this company is doing. So it's, it's been a pretty uh, phenomenal, you know, personally, they've done so much for me. And I always tell them, like, you know, I, I told Jocko the first time I got a chance to meet him and actually just say something to him. And I, I said, hey, sir, you know, you're, you're changing lives. And he said, hey, man, I appreciate that. And, and um, you know, I tell Leif, like, hey, I, sir, I always appreciate the opportunity to, to be here and just support the mission of what you guys are doing. So because um, they did a lot for me yeah and they don't I think they don't feel that way there's a lot of people I think that say like hey this book would did so much for me but um, when when I get out there and I, I speak with groups about wellness and stuff like that what I tell people is that you have to lead yourself so extreme ownership is is a leadership book packed in with you know some military examples of what happened in the Battle of Ramadi and then how they what they do now with the with the business community but you have to lead yourself and you have to first, right, look at yourself and what you're doing and then, you know, work on uh, your team, your organization. You may not lead anybody but yourself, yeah. right? But people will notice what you're doing and and that, that's how you can get some attention for yourself is like, um, is is do what you should, what you're supposed to do, you know, don't don't stop growing, don't stop learning. You know, I'm retired. I'm a retired guy now, right? But I don't stop. I'm not stop learning. I still go yeah. to leadership conferences. You know, oh, I don't yeah. work for any. I mean, I don't lead anybody. I like I. I'm a. You know, I'm. I'm just out there trying to help first responders. But I'm always trying to um, do a better job for my family and 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 um, you know and grow. I yeah. think as as a person. Well, um, I appreciate you sharing, being so open uh, with all of us about your experiences, what you went through your challenges, um, uh, what you did to get better. It's, it's sometimes it's, it's tough for people to, to admit things or let that wall down. We talked about that fort, you know, um, and I, Hey, I can build up a wall with the best of them, you know, and, um, but it's difficult sometimes for people to lower, lower that wall to be open to people. So thank you for being just genuine and honest, um, with, um, sharing your story and, and what you did um, and what you're doing to help others, first responders. It goes a long way and uh, it's a priority. More people are open to it. You know, back in the day, it was not something you admitted, something you didn't address. You just 
thought you were dealing with it. In reality, you were not dealing with it. And it, it, it impacted your life, but also people around you that you care about. So the, the officer wellness or the first responder wellness is extremely important. So thank you for, for really getting involved. I appreciate in that. that. And I think that more, more administrators are, um, are being opened to, to supporting their personnel. Like, you yes. know, in the early days, you know, you have a critical incident. Let's just say if you, if you get into a shooting, you had to go see a psychologist and it was really just checking a box and then yeah. there was really no aftercare or follow-up right. after that. It was like, hey, we sent you to go talk to somebody, but anybody, you're, you're never gonna say anything's wrong. No, like exactly. you go, yeah, yeah. right? You can, yeah. well, everything's cool, I'm fine, everything's great. Just to right? end that meeting. You're not gonna come forward and tell yeah. any, you know, you wouldn't tell people like if you were struggling. And early on, I wasn't struggling with anything. It's like, you know, hey, I, this happened. But later on, like, I, I appreciate what you said. And I think like, for what I, where I'm at now in my life is like, I have to be uh, open. Like I've, I've, I'm not afraid to tell people that I went and talked to a therapist. It was like right. the smart, you know, one of the smartest things I ever did. And if someone hears this and go, and that is struggling with something is there's, there's a hundred different ways for you to get help. And if you don't want anybody to know about it, nobody will know about it. Yeah. There's, you know, but, but you're not alone. And what you're, what every copper firefighter worth their salt, is going to have post-traumatic stress multiple times throughout their career and it's okay and it's normal and it's just in the way that you manage it yeah no very well said so well um jeff before we wrap up it's it's obvious uh through your entire i mean since you were what uh, how old were you trying to join the marines <laughs> early you know way back when you had that that calling for service so you know you as a marine you served our nation as a police officer, you served, um, you know, the communities you worked. Uh, now that you're retired, you're um, and um, you're helping first responders with their wellness. Um, it's obvious that you want to help people, and that um, you have a calling, and that you've lived a life of service. Um, and it doesn't matter what level in through your career. Um, you led a life as a leader, a career as a leader, and I think more importantly, um, you were a servant leader. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time to drive from Oxnard to be in uh, um, good old the old good old South Bay and to fight that traffic. But no, really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate all that you're doing thank these you. days. And uh, thank you for being our guest today on Behind the Line Podcast. I appreciate it, man. It's good talking to you. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like the show, please follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the show notes from each episode, visit BehindTheLinePod.com. If you want to support the show and hear more from our first responders and military veterans, head over to Patreon.com slash behind the line. I'll see you on the next one. All right.